0: Well, please have uh, James chapter three there open in front of you. It's uh, this is a point at which it's not the first time that James has done this, but he's raising the subject of wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom Wisdom was something that was really highly prized in the ancient Near East, you know, in the Old Testament times. The book of Proverbs well, the three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Job were known collectively in the Jewish scriptures as the wisdom books of of the Bible. That's where you went for wisdom. They contained the astute observations, really smart observations, of learned men who sought to understand the world they were living in. You can sort of almost picture these wise old men of the past sitting on the veranda in the rocking chair and watching life going by and thinking about it deeply, seeing trends developing and thinking, oh, I've seen that before. There's some wisdom in this. Let me write it down. Yeah, Wisdom. Now, interestingly, wisdom is not found only amongst God's people. That's quite surprising, perhaps, to some of us. But many cultures have placed great value on wisdom, the wise sayings of those who've gone before them. The Chinese have a particularly rich culture of wisdom. Let me throw a few of those up for you on the screen. Here's some Chinese proverbs, wisdom. To believe in one's dreams is to spend one's life asleep. I love that. That, that is ancient wisdom that really hits it to the culture we're living in today, doesn't it? Follow your dreams. No, no, you're just going to spend your life asleep, says the Chinese wisdom. How about this one then? You must cross the river first before you tell the crocodile he has bad breath. That's good, isn't it? It's a lot of, So you're laughing because you know you can see the wisdom, can't you? How about this one then, another one? Unless in a, there is an opposing wind, a kite cannot rise. That's great. Oh, yeah, we see the wisdom, don't we? Oh, that's a worthy saying, isn't it? Or oh, this last one here. The person who says something is impossible should not interrupt the person who's doing it. I love that. <laughs> so good. They're really good, aren't they? That's the wisdom of, of the Chinese sages. How about these from uh, all, all around Africa, different places in Africa? Here's one. Uh, other people's wisdom Other people's wisdom prevents the king from being called a fool. That's the wisdom of having people around you. Oh, I've got to listen to that as I try to lead the church, haven't I? Other people's wisdom. I need other people's wisdom. It's, it's, it's wise, isn't it? Or this one. When the moon is not full, the stars shine more brightly. Think about that. Mmm, mm, Sagely, isn't it? How about this one? If there were no elephant in the jungle, the buffalo would be a great animal. <laughs> yes. Excellent. So obviously, that's Ghanaian, apparently. Or how about this one? I like this one. one it's a Maasai proverb. Baboons do not go far from the place of their birth. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few of you feeling it. Hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, and, and you can see the cultural flavour in those proverbs. A little bit. You know, you've got baboons and elephants and all of that stuff get stuff going on. Uh, but these different cultures are all actually, they're, they're, they're putting in little soundbite form the same wisdom as each other, aren't they, in many ways. You see, you, you know, you come across some, a wise saying from somewhere in the Far East, and you say, yeah, that's the same as our proverb that I, I grew up in, you know, stitch in time, save nine, or something like that. Now... Of course, culturally speaking, here's the classic Irish saying. You'll like this one. This one's got the Irish flavour to it. Many a time a man's mouth broke his nose. I like that. Which Which is definitely a proverb we should have had last week, isn't it, as we were looking at the power of the tongue. And here's a proverb I found very, very useful in church leadership. This one, on a more serious note. Never take down a fence until you know why it was put up in the first place. There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? I'll try, I'll try to make sure I live by, by wisdom. See, wisdom's a gift, by, a gift from God. And it's because of God's common grace that we find wisdom all over the place, don't we, actually? And more on that in just a second, because I think there's some things we can observe from that. But the book of James has been described as the wisdom book of the New Testament. And, and that seems to be quite appropriate, doesn't it? The author has many pithy, sort of attention grabbing ways of saying things about how we are to live, the kind of lives we ought to live, uh, that, that we ought to live with integrity and genuineness. So there's a lot of wisdom there, and we kind of see it coming through. But here's the question, really, to start with What is wisdom? What is wisdom? Have you ever tried to actually define wisdom? And that's an important question, because after all, James starts this little section we just read in verse 13 by asking, who is wise and understanding amongst you? Uh, You've got to know what it is, otherwise you can't answer that question, can you? Hands up, says James. Hands up if you are wise and understanding. Let's see who you are then. Come on. The wise ones, you go stand over there, he's saying. Let's see who you are. That's the challenge here, isn't it? Clearly, wisdom then, with an introduction like that, is something we should all want to have. We should all be desiring it. And if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 5, as we started the first week we had in James, James tells us, if you lack wisdom, go and ask God for it. He loves to give it generously to people. Go after wisdom, says James. If you haven't got it, get it. It's an essential thing. Pursue it. In fact, for James, actually, it's the next item on his list of things that ought to characterise God's people. Let me take you through some of them. So he's saying in chapter 1, God's people are those that should be characterised by a deep trust in the purposes of God in our lives. So when the trials come, when the storms hit, we've got a deep trust that should characterise. We stay steady. Because of that characteristic that we're trusting the purposes of God. And he carries on to say, we are to be those characterized by not just listening to the word, but doing it. You know, we aren't just people that come of a Sunday, listen to a sermon, and go off and do nothing with it. And, and, you know, it means nothing to us. And then he says, we're to be those, as he goes into chapter two, we're to be those who don't just claim that we're following Jesus but we have deeds that match that claim. So the things that we do make that claim valid. Do you see? These are characteristics of God's people. We all should have these. And as we saw last week, another characteristic of God's people. We ought to be people who've disciplined our tongues. We ought to be people in control of our speech. And likewise then, God's people are to be characterized also by by true wisdom, and these things do connect together. This is what that last part of chapter 3 is about. We ought to be characterised by wisdom. Wisdom should be highly prized by all God's people. And not just any wisdom, but God's wisdom. You should not be content, says James. As says the word of God, actually. Don't be content just bumbling along through life. Not having a clue what to do with any situation that confronts you. You need to be growing in wisdom, knowing which way to go, learning that. There's one character, of course, in the Bible that we always think about when talking about wisdom, isn't there? The wisdom of Solomon. It's Solomon, we always go to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, we're told, in the Old Testament. Now, you remember how Solomon... When he comes to the throne of, of Israel, and some think he was a very young man at that point. In fact, he describes himself as a little child, but I think that's not just not, maybe not literally a little child. But as a very young man, he was asked by God what it was that he wanted at the beginning of his reign. What does Solomon ask for without, apparently, hesitation? There in front of him, on a plate, he's got the, the potential for wealth, you know, for, for long life, for power, for fame. No 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 without hesitating Solomon asks for wisdom give me wisdom so i can lead your people well and interestingly the book of proverbs which is attributed to, to Solomon starts if you've i don't know if you've ever read the first part of it it starts with a collection of kind of uh, lessons or essays that are passed down from father to son that's the that's the sort of flavor they have it's a father talking to His son. I wonder as perhaps Solomon wrote these things. It was he was recalling the words of his father David speaking to him. Listen to these words from chapter four. Just listen. This is a father to a son. Listen, my son. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you love her and she will watch over you wisdom is supreme therefore get wisdom though it cost you all you have get understanding esteem her and she will exalt you embrace her and she will honor you she will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor and solomon certainly took that advice didn't he and so should we. He sought wisdom over everything. And so I ask you again, before we can go much further, what is wisdom? (laughs) It's what we should be pursuing. And and here's the answer, really. We sort of know, don't we, what wisdom is. Quite quite often, I, I, I like to describe wisdom as being The difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Everyone likes to tell you tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting a tomato in a fruit salad. That's quite a good... But but that doesn't really tell you what wisdom is, does it? It's tricky, but we all kind of know what it is. Why? Because we recognise wisdom when we see it, don't we? That's what wisdom is. I don't know. You just recognise... When I read those sayings out... There's like a feeling always goes over you, yeah, that's clever, that's nailed it, that's true. You, you sort of, it rings true, doesn't it? Mm. And it's the same when we see it lived out. Do you know, as a young boy, I can remember for the first time actually reading in the gospel accounts in the Bible, Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the priests. And I, I, I remember it vividly, thinking just how wonderful these interactions were. You know, these authorities, we're told, are out to try and trap Jesus, to get him. They're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. In Mark chapter 12, we, we read this. Listen, oh, this is wonderful. They say this to him. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It's really flowery, isn't it? Here's the question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Can you see the trap? Uh, If Jesus says yes, of course, here, they can turn the crowd against him. They can basically discredit Jesus. He's on the side of the Roman authorities. He's unpatriotic. Don't listen to him. If Jesus says no... You know exactly where they're going to go next. Next stop is the Roman garrison, isn't it, to dob Jesus in and to get him arrested. How is Jesus going to escape this seemingly impossible predicament? Listen, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, a Roman coin, and let me look at it. And they brought him the coin and he asked, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription Caesars, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And you sit now just thinking, yes! (laughs) Bam! Jesus takes them down with just that little one-liner. Isn't it incredible? You see wisdom, you can't mistake it, can you? The whole situation is redeemed, is remedied, is won, is, is victorious, isn't it? Jesus was the one wiser even than Solomon. And the best I can sum it up, Wisdom, then, is the ability to navigate through life like an expert. That's really I can't do much better than that. It's the ability to just do life expertly. It's the ability to assess any situation that is in front of you and to make the best choice, to do the best thing. And that, that is really tricky because the world is really tricky and people are really tricky, which is why James chapter 1, verse 5, you need to go to God for wisdom. We need to be seeking it from God. So, though we might not be able to adequately define wisdom, it's a little bit enigmatic, isn't it? We can certainly recognise it when we see it. And that is actually James's first point. Look down with me at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding amongst you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Do you see? What is it? How do you know you have it? Wisdom is shown by its deeds, by how it materialises in the life of those who claim to have it. And so right off the bat, James has given us two things that will always flavour actions that are done with wisdom. And did you see what they are? He says, right, those of you with your hands up, you're in the wise side of the room. If you're truly wise, it's going to be evident in your actions. So let's look at those actions. What's the flavour of those actions? And first, he says, true wisdom will be seen in a good life. A good life. In other words, it will be seen in your conduct, in the way that you behave. James says, if you're truly wise... It will be seen in a life lived in obedience to God. A good life actually can only really mean that, can't it? The standard of goodness is God. Goodness gets its reference from God. He's the source of all good. So if you're living a good life, you're living a God life. You're living a life in obedience with his every word and instruction. That's a good life. And that ties in with the second thing here. Yeah, so you've got to build the picture with two layers here, the two flavours here. Second thing, wisdom is seen in the humility that characterises our deeds. you see that as he says that in verse 13? Humility. The word there that's actually translated is the word, word that we translate elsewhere as meekness. It's got the idea of power that's been subdued. Power under a subduing influence. If you put those two things together, you get quite an interesting picture. Last week, we talked about, do you remember we talked and James uses the illustration of the horse that has a little bit in its mouth. Remember? James said that just as the horse, this great bulking creature, this mighty animal, can be steered by a little piece of metal, In its mouth. And just as a ship, a great ship of the ocean can be steered wherever you want to go. It the whole ship moved around by a tiny little rudder at the back. So also the whole of our person, the whole of who we are, can be steered by that tiny little tongue in our heads. But stay with me on the horse for a moment. That mighty horse is perhaps the best illustration we can have of the what the word meekness really means its power a great brute power of the horse think of one of those big shire horses the suffolk punch the king of all shire horses which has been subdued tamed brought under the control of the of, of a tiny little bit of metal in the mouth and and, and the will of a person pulling a, a string a rein I love horses, clearly. That's how we should be. Can you see the picture starting to come together in that sentence? See, the fool, opposite of person who's wise, has no control of themselves. You get descriptions of it all through the book of Proverbs. No control. They charge around. They fly into rage. rages. They sulk. They bellow. They stamp their feet. And they want their own way. That's the fool, isn't it? The wise man has control. He measures his words. He measures his actions and acts appropriately. Now put those two things together. A good life, a life that is obedient to God and meek humility. And there you have the horse and its rider. We are trained and disciplined. All of our potential, all that that potential power is brought to heel. And Christ himself is holding the reins. Do you see? He calls the shots. We obediently follow, bringing ourselves into submission under him. And what a joy. And, of course, the perfect example, you want to see that lived out like a reflection in a mirror, is Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? Meek and obedient. The one with the power, the authority to create the universe by his words. Awesome in his majesty. And yet meekly obedient. Obedient, we're told, even to go to the cross and to die for us. That is wisdom. That's the personification of wisdom. That's what wisdom looks like. Good life, deeds done, or as as the ESV renders it, in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. But now, we've got to look at two things before we finish up today. And the first one James wants to show us is the counterfeit to this. The fake, the false version. False wisdom. Wisdom that is earthly. Have a look at verse 14. We must move on. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Do you see how here James paints us a contrast with what he's said? And it's contrasted again with what you get at the end there in verses 17 to 18, because he wants us to be able to spot false wisdom against true wisdom. And notice how The NIV picks up on this by putting the word wisdom in quotes. Do you see that in the text? Obviously, there's no quotes in the Greek, uh, in the original language. But because the NIVs understood that this this is not real wisdom. This is wisdom, right? Real wisdom has its source in God. But James makes very clear here, that's not the source of this wisdom. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven... But look at its source. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's of the devil. Now, I was thinking about this earlier on this week, and I find it interesting that James takes us here so often. Have you noticed? In chapter 2, verse 19, have a look, we're warned about having the kind of faith that devils have. He likes this topic, doesn't he? He says, look at the devils. They believe in one true God. Oh, yes, they believe in God, but it makes them tremble. Don't have faith like the devils. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, we're warned about how the tongue, when we're not using the tongue rightly, it gets set on fire by the fire of hell. James likes this imagery, doesn't he? And then here again, look, we have the warning about a false kind of wisdom that has its source. Actually, when you start peeling back the layers... Its sources in the devil. James is not shy to preach about the influence of the evil one on the life of the believer. Take heed. And you see, the essence of this kind of false wisdom, repeated here in verse 14 and 16, is two things, envy, or bitter envy, and selfish ambition. And then to stir that all up, you've got to stir in some boasting, says James. You've got to have the boasting in there. This is earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom which which hates to be challenged and contested. It gets all envious and jealous and fired up. Hot. The words sort of do mean heated that envious feeling that burns hot because it's being thwarted and it doesn't like being thwarted and it doesn't like being challenged. Picture those Pharisees, as Jesus takes them to task, how angry they get if they're plotting his death. It's exactly what's being talked about here. They're not wise men, these teachers of Israel. No, they've got an earthly wisdom full of envy and selfish ambition. This wisdom is hot with envious passion rather than meek and humble and under control. This wisdom is focused, did you see, on the self. It's all focused on me. It's looking in at myself all the time rather than being obedient to God and taking its lead from God. Something very dramatic happened to Western education, vaguely around the sort of 18th and 19th century, maybe a little bit earlier. It was called the Age of Enlightenment. You heard of the Enlightenment? It's an ironic name, I always think, because though I guess some good things did come out of the Enlightenment, it wasn't as if someone turned the light on. Actually, what really happened was that the source of light was moved. Where are we getting our light from? Well, we're going somewhere else. Essentially, it was a movement that shifted the foundations of knowledge of what we know away from God and onto human reason. That's what happened in education. That's our world. The basic principles of God's revelation to us were laid aside and man became the measure of all reason. The measure of all things becomes whether I can actually understand them, not whether God says it is so. That's the world all of us have grown up in. That's the world our children go to school in. That's what's being pumped into their heads every day. Our grandchildren, our children. And it's earthly, says James. That's earthly wisdom. It's horizons. The horizons of that wisdom never really go beyond the material world. Oh, it's very clever when it comes to the material world. And we can do all kinds of clever science, can't we? But the horizons horizons never go above that. The the, the perspective of that kind of kingdom is confined to being, as the book of Ecclesiastes called it, permanently under the sun. It's under the sun thinking all the time. Just the things of this world. And therefore, when that kind of wisdom searches for meaning and starts to look for meaning, it is always grasping at something it can't get hold of. And it will ultimately always come up empty as far as meaning goes. As one person puts it, in the search for meaning, that wisdom takes you on a wild goose chase without a goose. That's the picture, isn't it? This wisdom cannot make heads or tails of the cross. It just doesn't understand the cross at all. It never did. Human wisdom never understood the cross. Human wisdom looked at the cross and just said, what on earth is happening there? Heroes don't die on crosses. Saviors don't die. The cross is weak. The cross is stupid. But by the cross, we see the ultimate wisdom of God, as Paul's, uh, Paul tells us in, the chap- in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, doesn't he? The wisdom of God is the foolishness of man. The wisdom of man is just foolishness to God. They clash, don't they? Well, where does it end? Where does living by that kind of wisdom take us? Verse 16 tells us, take a look again. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, this earthly wisdom, there you find disorder and every evil practice, make no mistake. You see, the enlightened scholar it's always arguing that we do not need... Have you heard this? We do not need God to be moral, to be a moral, decent people. We just don't need that. We can do it all on our own, because we're quite good, really, aren't we? We'll find our own standard of good within us, and, and, and we'll get there. But history is playing out year, and, year after year, isn't it? Arguing the exact opposite. We do not reject God and then descend into a sort of human decency where we're living by pretty good rules. No, on the contrary, we return to paganism and all of its values. We find ourselves in a world where, as, uh, as the preacher Sinclair Ferguson puts it, people march for abortion rights one week and for saving the whale the next. Do you see the contradiction? a world of addictions and depression where mental illness is rife for where the order of God is rejected. Disorder, says James, is bound to come. You live by that earthly wisdom, you'll reap its fruit, the fruit of disorder and evil. You want to see earthly wisdom in action? It boasts in human knowledge and achievement all the time. You see people doing that? It never gives glory to God. It gets angry when it's challenged and it jealously then attacks all those that stand in opposition against it. Isn't that precisely what our children are facing in the classrooms? Or maybe some of us are. But those characteristics, those traits should not be seen in us. That's earthly wisdom. That's pseudo, fake, counterfeit wisdom. We don't fight fire with fire. Instead... We turn to God for heavenly wisdom. Let's have a quick look at that as we finish up in verses 17 and 18 there. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers will sow in peace, who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. We haven't got much time as we finish up, but what does genuine wisdom then look like? Well, first of all, and he says first of all, and I think it means probably most importantly of all, it is pure. It is pure. It's an interesting thing to put first, isn't it? The word there actually means chaste. In its broader sense, it speaks of faithfulness to one, faithfulness to one alone, a commitment to Christ, a commitment to God with no rivals. Or as the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the flavour of all wisdom, isn't it? It's an interesting use of the word fear, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That word fear means reverence, really, reverence. So you imagine a dilemma that you have where you've, you've got to choose between obeying God or caving to the pressure of those around you. Imagine that scenario. If you cave, if you capitulate to what everyone, your peers and your friends expect of you, that is the fear of man, isn't it? It's to reverence man. Wisdom says, never mind what man says. I care more about what God says. That's the fear of the Lord. That's all the fear of the Lord means. It doesn't mean being frightened. It means that you care more about what God says than what the world around you says. And that, says the book of Proverbs, that's the beginning of wisdom. It's first of all pure. It gives God the highest reverence. It's faithful to him. Following him in chaste faithfulness and allowing no rivals. And that wisdom is, have a look, is peace-loving, is considerate, is submissive. I guess they're mostly fairly self-explanatory words. Peace-loving. Loves peace. We're to love, promote and pursue peace. Commentaries seem to argue the other two qualities there in that group of three work together in the promotion of peace. It's what you do to promote peace. To be considerate to each other. To care about what they think and feel. To be submissive, or, or better, to be willing to defer on a a point of difference when it's a secondary matter. And wisdom, we're told, is full of mercy and good fruit. It is impartial, and it is sincere. Perhaps just look at that word sincere briefly as we finish up. Sincere. Do you know where that word comes from? It's from two words in Latin, sine and sera. Strange word because it literally means without wax, we're to be people without wax. <laughs> A practice in the ancient world was to patch broken sculptures with wax. If you damage something, you know, you chip your mum's sculpture of your dad, whatever it is, you chip the nose, take it down to be repaired, you get the wax in there and, and you patch it all up. And then it, you know, it's just about passable. Yeah? It's another way of saying hypocrisy, isn't it? The point there is that real wisdom, wisdom from God, lived out in our lives, requires no spiritual patching, no waxwork, no fakery, no hypocrisy. It's a life that's lived in the knowledge that God knows me inside out. He knows the beginning from the end with me. So no wax is needed. The mask can come off before him, and we can know true freedom. And brothers and sisters... The result of this kind of wisdom, if you just look at that last sentence there, the result of that kind of wisdom lived out amongst God's people is a community that is marked by peace, verse 18, reaping a harvest of righteousness, peace. A contrast surely with the fruit of earthly wisdom we saw in verse 16, where the, where the harvest, it's a harvest of disorder and evil practice. No, no, no. In the church, it's righteousness. It's peace. We've been so blessed over this past year, haven't we, as a church? We've enjoyed peace and unity together. And that's a wonderful thing. But let us continue to be vigilant. We mustn't buy into false wisdom. We mustn't let that take a grip. The false wisdom of this world, will, will given any chance, will permeate into our lives. It'll find a home in our hearts, sowing discord, sowing envious passions and self-interest. We mustn't let that wisdom, that wisdom, penetrate into our hearts. Pursue wisdom, real wisdom, wisdom from heaven, wisdom from God. Ask God for it. Learn it from his word. And ask that the Holy Spirit will apply it to your and my hearts so that our lives are marked by a meek submission to his leading. And pray that we see that wonderful fruit of of, of unity and peace continue amongst us.